You are listening to Word and Witness Part 2, a Bay City Church sermon series on the book of John. For more audio and video resources, visit baycity.church. Hey, so this weekend, yesterday actually, I got to go to uh, Sausalito, Mill Valley area. Some of you guys, anyone live there? No? No? Well, you wish, right? It's nice. <laughs> Right, there's a lot of boats in the water and uh, things like that. So we walked along the water over there and saw some yachts. I mean, there's some nice yachts out there. I mean, there are yachts bigger than our houses. I mean, combined, maybe. Like, these yachts are huge. This is probably where Zucks and some of these guys keep their stuff, right, on the water. It's nice. There's a lot of nice, a lot of nice restaurants out there, too. A lot of nice families. It's just a really nice place. You go over there and you're just comfortable, you know? And sometimes you leave out of the... Uh, out of the city, and sometimes the city can be a little suffocating. You know, we all love San Francisco, we love the Bay Area, but sometimes it's a little suffocating, so when you get over there, you start to breathe a little bit, right? It's just, it's just a nice place to live. I was talking with a church planting uh, organization, guy who runs a church planting organization. Uh, he said something interesting. He said the least church, Bay Area is really unchurched. I don't know if you know that. It's the least church metro region in the United States, by a long shot. But the most unchurched county, you have a guess? It's, it's, it's North Bay. The North Bay is the most unchurched place in the, in the United States, that county specifically, in, in the Bay Area. Isn't that crazy to think about? And I asked, like, why do you think that is? Like, why is it a place that's very difficult for people to hear from God, to talk to God? Why is it so unchurched? Because San Francisco's unchurched, the, Silicon, or the, the peninsula's unchurched, the East Bay, but, but why the North Bay? And he said, it's because people there don't feel like they need God. It's like, well, what do you mean? Oh, well, when you can provide everything for yourself, it's difficult to see a need for like a benevolent God. If you have everything you need, if you've got water, you've got a view, you've got a nice house, you've got a good school for your children, and you've got nice family dinners and everything like that, of course, people, all people have problems, but over and above the most part, it's hard for people to find God. Isn't that interesting? You know, none of us here feel like uh, that we've got everything we need, probably. Maybe some of us feel like we have everything we need, but there's things what we want. But none of us would say here that we don't have it better off than a lot of other countries, right? Most of us would admit that we have it pretty good. Even the poorest among us uh, live incredibly well compared to the poorest in some of the poorest countries. I got to, many of you guys have heard about my trip to India. I got to go and see some of the lower levels of the caste system and to see how they live and to see how they have to eat. And it's very, very challenging and difficult. And so even the poorest among us have it, have it pretty well here. It's interesting, though, because we all still work really hard. And I think the small talk conversation here in the Bay Area is, is that what you pay for rent? Oh, man, like, that's crazy. Uh, like, man, are you thinking about moving? Uh, it's tough here. Uh, man, where are you moving? What part of the East Bay are you going to to be able to survive here, right? That's, that's, the, pre- that's the prevalent conversations we have here. We all are on this journey. Even those of us who feel well off are still trying to provide more money, more money, more money, more provision, more housing. Is there anything bad with that? Inherently, of course not. But those are the conversations we have. But sometimes we can get to this point where as we live our lives here in the Bay Area, that maybe we do have everything we need. Maybe we do have everything we want. But as we try to pursue things for ourselves, there is one thing we need to keep in mind. There are things that we need we actually can't provide for ourselves. There are things that we can't provide for ourselves. And so even as we pursue uh, in the workplace, we pursue uh, upward mobility and we pursue jobs and we pursue extra money and we pursue relationships, all these things, those are all great external needs that we have to have met. But there are internal needs that we actually need met as well. And the trouble is when we get, we get uh, accidentally start 
pursuing uh, internal needs with external things. And we get into trouble doing that, right? So I want to be happy. And I go work my way up in a job, right? I date a guy because that will make, give me, make me fulfilled. Maybe it's the wrong person. You see what I'm saying? There are things that we need we cannot provide for ourselves. And this passage is John 6, by the way, John 6, 1 through 14, talks a lot about, I mean, a lot about God's provision. And maybe here, if you like, were a Christian and you grew up in that, you may have heard of this story. The story is that Jesus feeds 5,000 men along with women and children. He feeds tons of people, thousands of people, perhaps upwards of 10,000 people with some bread and some fish. Now, that's pretty crazy, right? But there's something, you know, the, the Bible is intelligently designed. It's intelligently designed all the way through, not just in one book, but across it. And this miracle, this miracle is the only miracle in all of the Gospels told in its entirety in all four Gospels. It's the only one. And so if we note that, we must know that God is probably trying to tell us something unique about this story. If he's repeating it that many times, there must be some significance for us. Now, I know many of us are here going to focus on the miracle. We're going to look at the miracle and say, man, isn't it crazy that God can do these crazy magic tricks and perform and make things happen and turn bread and, and fish and feed all these people? Isn't that amazing? It's true. It is crazy. But the story isn't focusing fully on the miracle itself. It's actually not. The story actually focuses on Jesus' radical provision towards those he calls his children. And so we're going to look at this miracle and get excited about this miracle. But what we need to do is actually turn our heads a little bit to the side and see what Jesus is actually trying to communicate, that he provides for his people. Now, in this story, we're going to learn four things about Jesus' radical provision for his people. We're going to learn four things. More specifically, we're going to learn what God provides for us that we don't even see. One theologian says that God's doing 10,000 things in a Christian's life, and we might be aware of three of them. And that's probably true for you. God's doing all of these different things, and we don't even recognize what he's trying to tell us right in front of our faces. We don't even see the things he's doing, holding the universe in balance for us. So we're going to learn four things about him. And the first thing we notice is that Jesus' provision for us is instinctual. It's instinctual. This means he does it on command. He feels it. You know, uh, if you ever had a child, if, if, if something changes in you when the first kid shows up, right? Something changes. All of a sudden, I mean, I, when I think about myself as a non-dad, I think about a pretty, I don't know, selfish uh, uh, guy. Took care of myself, you know, loved people, but didn't realize how selfish I was until a little child that I was the only person was supposed to care for besides my wife. I was like, this is it. And something happens biologically. You change. You instinctively change. You just go, oh, I have to care for this thing. And if I don't, it dies. It's my responsibility. They'll arrest me. I'll go to jail. I can't do this. Like, I got to figure this out. And you're panicking and you're, free, you're freaking out. Like, oh my gosh, what do I do? My daughter came around Christmas time, right? And I could hold her like a football and she was so small. And I'm like, what if I lose her in the house? Like, like she's so small that I feel like I, she was smaller than our dog at the time. I'm like, we had a pug, like the thing was tiny. I'm like... Yeah, we don't have it anymore, just so you know. Um, so we had this, my wife laughed, I'll tell you the story later. The baby was tiny. I'm like, what if I lose her? It's my responsibility. That's what Jesus feels here. And let's just look at the passage, I'll explain it. Verse 1 at our passage. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover and the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, one might ask, why does Jesus feel, necess- feel it necessary in his responsibility to provide for all of these people walking towards him? That's the first thought in his mind. My first thought would have been like, do they have torches? Are they headed toward me? Like, how do I get out of here? Like, that wasn't Jesus' first thought. He looked up and saw all the people and said, hey, do we have enough food for them? That's crazy. I, my wife uh, instinctively makes snacks for my children. Like, it, it's insane. We've got so much, like, Cheez-Its and crack, Cheez-Its and, um, what are those things, like, fish crackers, which I think, are those the same thing, but just, like, shaped differently? Nonetheless, we've got those things all over the house. And instinctively, the kids instinctively know to walk up and ask my, mom, my wife. They know I'm not giving it to them. They ask her for a snack. They ask for a snack. And she's always got this like bag full of snacks. Just pop them open. Here you go. Here you go. Here you go. It's just instinctive on her. She does it. And that's what happens with a new father and a new mother. It's the same thing. A father and a mother know that biologically they've got to provide. Actually, some years ago in London, a car hit a young child, a six-year-old boy, and the car trapped the six-year-old boy underneath. And the six-year-old boy had broken his leg, and two mothers were walking by. The kid was by himself. And they somehow, a 47-year-old woman and a 29-year-old woman, were able to get this car off that young boy. They felt it, like that mother's strength came in, you know, and they just decided they were going to lift this car. Now, I know some of us think that's probably bogus, but actually scientists say that gross motor skills improve in mothers when children are in danger. So maybe fine motor skills like writing in cursive really quickly or something like that go away, but being able to lift some, get that car just enough off of that boy improved. Crazy. Scientists have said that that can happen. Now, what we know from the crowds and what, the disi- and what Jesus' disciples are finding out is that Jesus and this Father God are one. And so Jesus, we know, is this King of Israel. And so Jesus looks on the horizon and sees whom? The people of Israel coming toward him. And so Jesus, the fa- Jesus in conjunction, acting with one as the Father, looks up and sees that the people of Israel are heading toward him, and the King of Israel goes, I must provide. He instinctively knows that about these people. He must provide for them. That's the first thing. The second thing we learn about Jesus' radical provision is this. It's over our heads. I know sometimes this can feel like ridiculous that like a guy just literally tore up a, a Lunchable and fed 5,000 people with it and more or more. Like I get that that looks, that seems crazy. That's okay. This is over all of our heads. This is over my head. This is over every theologian's head has ever lived. It's only not over one person's head and that's Jesus himself. What he's doing is something powerful. You know, we don't always see God's provision, even when we read it, but we also don't see it in our lives. We don't always understand it, and we often feel like it can't happen. We often feel like God's provision can't happen in our lives. Have you ever had a need and want to pray for it and then go to pray for it and ask God, will you give this to me? But deep down you know it's probably not going to happen. Have you ever done that? All right, Lord, I know I need this. And you're thinking, ah, he's probably not going to answer this deep down inside. You ever felt that? Have you ever seen a need so large in your life or in the life of someone else that prayer didn't even cross your mind because the need was so large? 
You're like, prayer? No, it's done. Stage four cancer. Oh, no, there's no way. The bill's due tomorrow. It's done. Have you ever seen a need so large you just felt like, man, the resources just, just aren't there for it? That's what's happening in this passage. Verse five, again. Lifting up his eyes, that's Jesus, then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew, for he himself knew what he would do. So I just be, I just want to be kind to Philip here for a second. I, you know, five thousand plus people are walking towards you, and you know this guy's probably the God of the universe. And then he turns to you out of all the disciples with him and goes, "Hey, where do we buy bread for all these people?" And Philip's probably like, uh, "Yeah, uh, was I supposed to know that? Like, I." I don't want to let Jesus down. I don't, I don't know where we can get this much bread. Like, I have literally no idea. Poor Philip. How inadequate must he have felt in that moment? But luckily for Philip, Jesus asked the questions, the question on purpose, doesn't he? Because Jesus wants Philip to recognize the insurmountable nature of this problem. He wants Philip to know that there is literally no chance we can we can solve this problem. That's what he's asking. Jesus asks questions that bring us to the ends of ourselves. He always does that. He asks questions to us in our lives so that we realize we have no answers. And when we have no answers, we have no choice but to go to him. That's what's happening here. Jesus knew what he would do, but wanted Philip to realize the gravity of his own inadequacy. You see what I'm saying here? God will often put us in situations where our inadequacy is clear so that his sufficiency will be obvious. You see that? God will often put us in situations where our inadequacy is clear so that his sufficiency will be obvious. Will be obvious. This is a big thing. But Philip, like the, the rest of the disciples, you know, he, he misses the clues. Jesus is asking a leading question, and he misses it. He misses it. Just like God asks us questions, and we miss it and Philip is missing it here, the disciples' response, we actually see shadows of ourselves, and actually another disciple gets a crack at it. Uh, look at verse 7 in Philip's answer, and then we'll talk about Andrew. It says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You see how the Andrew and Philip here are answering this question? What do they do? Jesus asks an insurmountable question, knowing full well they have no chance. What do they do? They pull their calculators out. And they start going, okay, Lord, uh, let's see. Uh, five fish, uh, two loaves, okay. Uh, store down the street, uh, okay, let's add that up, carry the two. We don't have a lot of money. We can't do it. We can't do it. We've looked at our resources, Lord, and we have determined that the question you asked cannot be answered. That's what's happening. We often look at, to our resources and see that our needs outweigh what needs to happen. You see what I'm saying? We're doing that. We do the same thing ourselves. You know, it's funny because they're looking at their resources and they're focusing on their resources and they're so set on our resources and you know you do the same thing. You know, you go, okay, Lord, well, I got this job and if I can... Get, get up to the next job in two years. That'll provide enough for me to do this and that. And okay, our, marriage, our relationship's going really well. And if I'm able to continue the relationship in a specific way, then we'll get married and then all my needs will be met. Thank you, Lord. And God's kind of like a consultant to you. He's kind of like, a, he's kind of like listening to you while you're on your back on the couch. 
And then you go, okay, I feel better now, Lord, goodbye. And we didn't ask him for anything. We didn't praise him. We didn't give thanks. We didn't repent. We just, he just hears us out. And he's willing to do that, but he can do much more. He can do a lot more than that, and we're missing it. You know, it's actually much harder to give God our weaknesses than it is to give him our strengths. You see, if they had most of the bread, they might have been like, okay, Lord, we only need 30% more bread here. Lord, make this happen, Lord God. Some people probably have a couple loaves out here. There's a store around the corner, Lord Jesus. Work in the hands of that baker uh, and provide that bread, Lord God. And we provide these like 20%, 30% prayers. We're, we're more than willing to do that. But when we're at the end of ourselves, but when we've lost everything, and we know that the, it, the odds are insurmountable, we have 1% of the bread, we're not going to pray for the 99. And if we do, it's probably not coming. That's what Andrew and Philip here are experiencing. But guys, we, uh, we often underestimate the wealth we have in Jesus. We often underestimate the wealth we have in Jesus. The disciples did this, and we do this. But Jesus does not operate the way we operate. Jesus has access to provision we cannot see. You know, I think we often shrink the size of our God with our asks. There's a, Thomas Carlyle says that men are like the God they serve. You have a generous God? You ask him for a lot. You have a God that'll give you 20%? You have a God that's a, a counselor? Oh yeah, you've got, that's, if you ask God for a little, you've got a God that will give you little. If you ask God for, for uh, a few things, but you know you can't answer it, you know he can't do it, then you don't have that sort of God. That's the problem. We often, we, oft, we often are like the God we serve. Now, what sort of God do we serve? If our God is limited and he can't provide for the needs we have, then we have a limited God. That's just it. If our God is radically generous, then we pray radical prayers. We're missing our God's quality, guys. We're missing it. The next thing Jesus' radical provision does, what is it? Is that it's more than enough. It's more than enough for us. It's over our heads. That's okay. It's also more than enough. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. I love how Jesus doesn't even address <laughs> Philip or Andrew at all. Like they both go, well, uh, Jesus, I mean, if you'll see what, what my math here, uh, we can't feel, he just goes, have the people sit down. <laughs> he just doesn't even, doesn't even address them. Like, it's, a, it's perfect. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Other, uh, by the way, other gospels account that there are also women and children in this passage. This one doesn't mention it, but there is. So we're talking maybe five, could be more, could be nine, 10, 11,000 people. We just don't know. Uh, then Jesus took the loaves, and we had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Wait, what? Did you read that? Can you put that back up? It says, as much as they wanted. <laughs> now, I'm not Jesus, but if I was going to do a miracle, I feel like just enough makes a lot more sense than much as they wanted, you know? Like, that's a lot of bread to create from nothing, okay? But it says that they can have as much as they wanted. That's profound. You can have as much as you want. How much provision do you need from God? As much as you want. How much of Jesus do you want? as much as you want. You can have as much Jesus as you want. Those who go to God with their needs will not find him stingy. He is not a stingy God. He is not carrying the two on your provision. He is giving you over in abundance. And when we limit God with our limited prayers, we're denying ourselves access to what he wants to give us. That's what's happening here. How much of Jesus in your life can you guys have? 
as much as you want. Don't you see what I'm saying here? You can have as much of a benevolent, loving Savior as you want. You do not have to carry the one. He's not going to give you 99%, and you've got to figure out the other one. He's going to give you an over and abundance of what you need. That's what we're talking about here. Now listen, for the Bible nerds, this doesn't mean that God's going to meet all of your wants, and he's not going to give you everything you're greedy for, okay? He's not going to give you all of the riches. You're not going to swim around in your money like Scrooge McDuck come Christmas time. Like, he's not going to just oversaturate you with all of your need, all of your wants. That's not what we're talking about here. But it does mean that God's going to over and abundantly meet your needs. Over and abundantly meet your needs. Now, I have to say something else about this passage, and it's kind of a divergence, but it's important. Over the last 50 years, our modern philosophers today have discovered new findings regarding this passage. And this is quite common, that Jesus actually doesn't multiply these loaves here, that he inspires a little boy to share his lunch, and in it, inspired crowd to pull out their lunch. The real miracle, then, is not in Jesus. The real miracle is in the human spirit, that Jesus enabled this young boy to be generous, and everyone else became generous as well. Now, Jesus inspires us to be great, but the greatness lies within us. Now, that, I'll tell you what, that sounds real nice, particularly at like a, uh, like a, a, a sales rally at a company. I mean, we can, get, we can get real excited about that. Man, the deep greatness lies within you. You know, like all of those great things. Here's the trouble with this. This is a very human explanation of what happens here. This is a very, very human explanation. The answer to this is us. Do you hear a ridiculous? So, so 5,000 people, 10,000 plus, all, all of the sudden have food and bread together and they're able to eat. And what's the answer? We all found it in our heart to share. We were all greedy and now the whole world turns into a giant Barney episode and now we're all hugging each other and giving each other what we need. I love you, you love me. We're a happy family <laughs> with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Why don't you say you love me too? I had to finish. Oh, I still remember, man. That, that's from the vault, okay? <laughs> but guys, that's a human explanation. And oftentimes, humans try to look at the scriptures and figure out how they're the hero in it. Jesus here is not describing human, humans as heroes. He's describing himself as a hero. Jesus is the hero in the story. Second, this does violence to the text. This is not, that's not in the passage at all. In four Gospels, the most explained miracle in all of history, this is not in the text. Third, this explanation is the exact opposite of what is trying to be shown by Jesus. This is literally the 180 of what Christ is trying to communicate. Jesus is not trying to show us that we have enough to meet our needs. He's trying to show us that we don't have enough. Do you understand what's happening here? It's not about us meeting our own needs if we put our heads together to discover the goodness within us. It's that even at the best of our best, we lack the resources to provide even some things for ourselves. That's what's happening. Self-sufficient human psychobabble gets us to point inward. That's what happens. What we need to do is look outward for a solution. Jesus brings the solution to us. We do not provide the solution within, okay? Now, there is more to this passage here. Verse 12, because remember, we're talking about how Jesus is more than enough in his provision. Verse 12, it says, when they had eaten their fill, so they, they were all full, which that takes me a long time. They all got to be full, <laughs> not just enough to survive. They were full. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, then nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves by 
left by those who had eaten. And what do we find in Jesus here? What do we find in Jesus? With us, we find that our needs surpass our resources. But with Jesus, we find the resources surpass the need. Don't you see? Jesus gives us an, un, an over and abundance of what we need. Not just enough. Not just, not just a little. Not just enough that you can get halfway there or three quarters of the way there. He gives over and abundant. The psalmist says, we bring our cup to the Lord and our cup overfloweth. We bring ourselves to Jesus and he provides an over and abundance of his Holy Spirit and an over and abundance of resources for us. That's what happens in this passage, okay? Now, if you're here and you're thinking, man, I'm thinking more than enough car, more than enough uh, house, more than enough uh, bank account, maybe, maybe, could be, but that's not the focus is possessions. There's actually more going on here than possessions. And sometimes God will have you with lacking possessions, but you'll still have more than enough spiritually. Some of you will actually be lacking money and have far more greater joy and far greater peace in your life because you have more than you need. So don't make this American by saying that this is about money here. That's not what we're talking about. In Jesus, the resources surpass the need. In the presence of Jesus, by the way, money is not the answer. It's Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, human innovation is not the answer. We saw what Philip and Andrew tried to do with their calculator. In the presence of Jesus, teamwork and collaboration were insufficient. Are those good things? Of course they are. But in the presence of a problem like this, none of them were sufficient. Jesus presented a problem that only he could solve. In a world where we declare unsolvable problems unsolvable, Jesus provides an answer. We look and we're very dualistic. We see the world, the spiritual, very separate. If it's there from the physical, if we declare something unsolvable, it's unsolvable. Jesus says, no, I can solve anything. That's what's happening. Now, I know this can be hard to believe, but God actually really loves to bless and, and, and honor those he calls his. He's been doing it for a long time. Isaiah 30, uh, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Man, some of us have a God that's like a, kind of like a dad that's in the house but doesn't really talk to us. Like he's there. He's present, but he's not engaged. And so, yeah, you have some of the things you need. Like I've got a house. Yeah, I've got, I get dinner. But you don't know your father. That, that's not God the father. This father is far different. Through Christ, he's an intimate, loving God that wants to provide. He's looking for opportunities to give more. He's peeking over at you, wondering if you might need something else. That's what he's doing. He's not sitting over there stoic, just trying to get some work done. That's not what he's doing. He's looking at you. So do you need something? Are you going to ask? And he's trying to identify that. <laughs> Guys, I want to encourage you with this more than enough mentality. This can motivate us. You know that Christians means little Christ. It was like used originally as a pejorative term. It was used to loop in a group of ragtag, multi-ethnic, multicultural people that all worship this guy, Jesus. That's what it was for. But it means little Christ, which means that we can become imitators of Jesus, and we can be like Jesus. The church is supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be. And so when we see Jesus provide over and abundantly, we should look to provide over and abundantly to other people. Man, what we did for the teachers is fantastic. We can do more of that. We can find people that need their needs met. We can give far more. We do not have to hold grasp onto our resources in fear as if God's not going to provide what we need. Oftentimes, by the way, when we're stingy, that is a sign of fear, by the way. It's not always a sign of arrogance. It could also be a sign of fear. We just are afraid that God's not going to give us more of what we have. You can give. You can give. If you 
if you have one dime, you can give one dime. And God can multiply that one dime. We can be this shower people with overwhelming service and generosity in their lives. I want ridiculous generosity for you. I want that to be on your wall as one of your core values of your family. I want to see you live out of that. I've got a God that serves me. He's blessed me with more than anything I could ever give. I'm going to lead out of that. That's going to be one of my core values as a family. And here's here's one of mine. I want you to, man, I, I hope this becomes a core value for you. Blow people away with the kingdom of God living inside of you. Blow people away with the kingdom of God living inside of you. You have the power of Jesus that rose him from the grave within, and you can utilize that and blow people back. You can make them cry at their desk because of generosity. You can do that. And you can live out of that. Those who are in Christ never lack. Give away your things. Serve radically. Give your time. Give your effort. Give your energy. Lastly, and most importantly, Jesus' radical provision is bigger than we think. So we know it's over our heads, so obviously it's going to be bigger than we think. And we know that it's, uh, it's instinctual. And we know that it's more than enough, but it's actually bigger than we think. Just when you thought, like, Jesus' generosity was overwhelming to us in what we just talked about, like, this is actually just getting started, guys. There's actually layers to this. There are so many layers to this passage. We, we, we see that it's instinctual, right? We saw that. We saw that it's over our heads. We know that it's more than enough, but it's also way bigger. Now, how do we know that? There is a little tiny clue in verse 4 left by Jesus. Just a little one. The author of this book, the Apostle John, leaves us a clue. And we just read past it. But it's there. Let's go back. Let's go back to verse 1. I'll read all all the way through. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up from the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Here's verse 4. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The writer John makes it clear what time of the year it is. It's Passover. Now, for those of you that don't know the original story of Passover, the ancient Israelites, those are the people of God, were enslaved to Egypt. And they were oppressed, and they were beaten, and they were flogged and made to build uh, various buildings and designs and things like that. And they were slaves. That's where they were. And God decides through a guy named Moses that he's going to free them. He's going to get get them out of there. And so he enlists a few different plagues to get the Pharaoh of Egypt to let them go, and he never does. And so he enlists one last one. We're going to take your firstborn. You're going to kill people. You're going to oppress people. I'm going to take your firstborn. You don't have to. You can just let them go. But if you don't want to, I have to take your firstborn. And so he goes to Israel, and he says, listen, guys, you take take a lamb, slaughter it, and place the blood over the top of the door. And when I do, the Holy Spirit's going to come through. It's going to come, my presence is going to come through. And if it senses that blood, it's going to pass over your space and you will be safe. And so what happens, the story happens and they are passed over. The grace of God is upon them. And then they escape through an exile. They go, they go out of Egypt across the Red Sea and then they go out into the forest. And what immediately happens? They're in the wilderness. They get hungry. They get hungry. They're just a bunch of Israelites wandering in the desert. They don't have anything to eat. And so what does God do? God says, okay, I'm going to provide bread for you. I'm going to let it rain out of the sky, and bread's going to come to you, and you're going to eat your fill. You see what, do you see this? Jesus here, when he breaks the bread, is telling everybody something about himself. The same God the Father 
that oversaw the Passover and the provision of manna from heaven is the same guy right here tearing bread apart and providing for people of Israel again. You see what's happening here. The layers of what Jesus is trying to tell us. And this Passover day is really important. Because while we all experience temporary provision to now, bread's good, right? Bread was tasty. I, it, the bread, actually, when it rains down, said it had like some coriander seed and some oil. Like, sounds pretty good. It's good bread. But it's only temporary provision, isn't it? We need ultimate provision. And this Jesus is not just pointing backwards. He's actually pointing forward. This is crazy. He's pointing forward to a day where Jesus himself will provide not just temporary provision, but ultimate provision. He will go to a cross, an innocent man, and he will be slaughtered just like that lamb was. And all of those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior will be passed over from sin. By the way, guys, sin, the wages for sin is death. We die without Jesus, spiritually, physically, but with the blood of Jesus over our doors, we can be passed over. Jesus here is saying, I am the Passover Lord. I am the bread of life. And I die so that you might live. Do you see what I'm talking about here? Now, if that doesn't light your fire, then I guess your wood's green or wet. I mean, that's exciting. <laughs> so how do we respond to this? How do we respond that Jesus would provide ultimate provision, not just temporary provision, not just your car, not just your bills, okay? Your soul. How do we provide? How do we respond? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't pay him back. Why? The same way you can never pay your mother back. Good luck paying your mom back for what she went through for you. It's not happening. You can't pay him back. You can't, and even if you could, you would never have, you would never live long enough to be able to do that. It's impossible. This is God of the universe. You can't pay him back. The truth is, like a child can't pay their mother back, you have nothing adequate enough to pay him back. But what do you have? What's in your pocket? Where's your time go? Man, listen, Jesus takes a little kid's lunch and makes it a meal for over 10,000 people. He can take whatever's in your pocket, wherever you put your time, and make it whatever he wants to make it. That's the problem. It's always easier to give God our strengths than it is our weaknesses. When you realize you can't pay him back, that's a weakness of yours. But when you give that stuff to God, it becomes a strength. That's just how it works. You think you, think you have 1%? You have a dime in your pocket? God can multiply it and make it something special. Your nothing plus God equals everything God needs to do whatever he needs to do. Do you hear what I'm saying? You have everything right now for those of us that are in Christ to be exactly who God wants you to be, but to do exactly what God wants you to do. And some of us have got the first part down. We need to start figuring out what God was going to multiply with our resources. So I pray that this moves you towards generosity. I, hope it, I pray it moves us towards service, but I hope it moves you towards confidence and grace. Knowing that whatever you have is enough. You feel inadequate, you're not. You feel like you're not getting the job done, you are. In Jesus, you can. Let's pray.